right, well, welcome back to From Eight Arbitration. I've got John Poskin on today. I told you I was going to get it worked out. So what I've done is I've rubber banded my phone to my microphone. And so John is going to be talking <laughs> rubber banded to my microphone. So I hope this works. Uh, Cole is getting me something to download on here so that I don't have to, to mess with this anymore. Uh, but that will be next week. Uh, he'll have that for me. So until then, I needed to get John on. It's a very good episode. Uh, and this is going to be 100% foolproof because this is going through what I use. And it's not going through Discord. So um, next week is Easter. Next week is Easter. And so we will. Uh, I will do an episode next week. I've got a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, we're going to start grieving these load times, this load feature. Uh, we, we've won that here in Nashville. Uh, I know a lot of people say just do it. But when, when you get conditioned to just take everything management gives you and just do it, this is what happens. They're going to continue to do things to us because we refuse to grieve things. We just do it. And I'm not going to be conditioned by anybody. And so next week I'll talk about that. There's a lot of stuff I'm going to do next week. And so um, that'll be a long episode. But this week is John Poskin. I appreciate him very much. Uh, like I said, he was on for about an hour and a half, two hours a couple of weeks ago, and I lost every bit of it. So, John, I'm going to step out of the way, my brother. It's all yours, and uh, I will see you on the other side of it. All right, my man? All right, brother. Thanks for having me on again, Corey. All right. Appreciate um, it, man. Okay. So, hey, everybody. Um, glad to be back. This is my uh, second appearance here. I'm from A to Arbitration. I really enjoyed my first appearance and, uh, you know, hope to be a contributor from time to time uh, to help Corey with what he's doing. Uh, I think it's uh, a lot of great information that's been coming out in this podcast. Um, before I get into my, my, my couple topics for today, I just want to mention, you know, my, my uh, national business agent, Mike Cariff, had been on here a few times recently uh, to speak about collective bargaining. And, you know, we are in the middle of contract negotiations right now. So everybody out there should make sure they, they let their national business agents, their national officers, whether it's through emails or letters or phone calls or whatever, know how they feel about what they, is important to them in this contract. Uh, Mike highlighted a lot of things that I, I think most members would agree is very important right now. So I really suggest listening to those episodes as he does a pretty good breakdown of those things. Um, with that being said, um, the first thing I'm going to spend a little bit of time on is uh, Corey had, had mentioned to me um, that he'd been a lot of questions about uh, the 8190 and filling it out correctly and the importance of the 8190. So I'm going to spend a little time going through the informal A section and maybe just briefly touch on the formal A section of the form. Um, and without further ado, I'll, I'll start there. So the PS form 8190, that is the grievance form. That is our form, official form, when we file a grievance. Um, the very first section, number one at the top, is right underneath where it says informal A. Uh, that's to be filled out by the informal A steward, all the lines except for the supervisor's line. That will be filled out by the supervisor, and we'll kind of go through them each here in order uh, quickly. So number one, grievance name. Uh, if it's being filed for an individual carrier, you would just put that carrier's name on that line. If it's for multiple carriers, you put class action. Uh, from time to time, I'll see... Uh, union representatives may put their own name on there with a dash class action. That's technically not correct. 
Um, if, if it's an issue that is affecting the union steward, you could definitely argue it's affecting all the carriers in their office as he is the representative, he or she is the representative for every single carrier in that office. So I would generally file that as a class action issue. Um, but if you filed it and just wrote the steward's name on there, that would not be incorrect. Um, number two is the grievance telephone number. It's really important to get the grievance contact information on the form if possible. Um, I remember when I was a younger steward, I was, you know, maybe a year, less than a year as a steward. Um, a business agent contacted me and he was trying to pre case and I didn't have the grievance phone number on there, you know, trying to get the phone number. And sometimes these things can be time sensitive. So it's really important to make sure we have that proper information on there. So the people, if they, when you send these cases up to the higher levels that the formal aid representative or, uh, you know, uh, some of the business agents, office, arbitration advocate, any of those can actually reach out and talk to the agreement when need be. Um, number three is seniority date. And this and number four kind of combined are, are very important, especially in disciplinary cases. Um, and I'm going to actually go through an arbitration here in a minute, but no, you, you want to put their seniority date. So for with the CCA, you really want to go all the way back to their entry date date this because we could get a lot of arbitrators to include that CCA time is kind of part of seniority for like a bank of goodwill, uh, which we'll talk about too. And then just what their status is, is number four, full-time, uh, full-time flexible. PTR is part-time regular. Uh, I don't think we have a lot of those out there these days. PTF, uh, which are going to start becoming more and more common as more installations are being uh, higher and straight to PTF and then CCA. Um, and so I'm going to go through an arbitration award here. That was, this was, I was the formal A representative for this arbitration it was um out of my office and what it was it was a carrier was issued a notice of removal um and she had there was three charges here she was uh drive operating a postal vehicle on a suspended license did not inform management she had a suspended license and when they did a license check on her she tried passing off her sister's license as her own um that's a very serious charge um and our advocate for the case is, is Carl Ulfline. Uh, the C number here is C-33749. And this was in front of arbitrator Nixon. Uh, and I will go just, just read a few of the highlighted portions I have here of um, arbitrator Nixon's thoughts in this case. I'm going to page nine at the bottom in the discussion section. It says, removals are the ultimate disciplinary action and termination of an employee after years of unblemished service is a penalty whose impact cannot be fully appreciated, especially in cases where management has deemed an incident so egregious that they opt to forego progression. In such cases, the burden of proof is heightened. So, yeah, in this particular case, the agreement had no disciplinary uh, action on record. There was no letter warning. There was no, no, no suspension or anything, and it went straight for the removal. Um, so it talks about national arbitrator, Trader Snow, offered the following in, a, in this the case numbered here is 840187 and it says one can never underestimate the disruption that termination of a long-term employee can have on the life of the worker who has been removed from employment for over 15 years the grievance has enjoyed a steady income from his employment with the postal service no doubt he has incurred financial obligations commensurate to with that income termination of an employment can produce immediate economic and emotional effects in the life of an employee. Partly in response to the enormity of such a decision, the burden of proof has been placed on the party asserting the affirmative side of the decision to terminate the employee. That is the burden of proof on the employer who has also borne a 
preliminary burden of making a prima facie case as well. The quantum of proof necessary to state discharge over the years has been a relatively great one. And um, just to briefly touch on that, a lot of times, uh, I think Corey's mentioned this in a lot of his podcasts, um, but especially in, in uh, removal cases, management will generally be held to a bit higher burden of proof than your normal preponderance of evidence. It's, what, it's what's called clear and convincing evidence uh, standard. Um, so that's that's what that's what arbitrator Snow is referring to there. Um, we go to page 13 of the award. It talks about a review of the evidence of record demonstrate that the parties stipulate too much of the facts in this case, and as a result, most of the principles of just cause have been satisfied sufficiently to show that discipline was warranted in the instant case. However, in the case of removal, as cited in arbitrator Snow's opinion. The quantum of proof necessary to sustain a decision to discharge an employee over the years has been a relatively great one. In other words, just cause in discharge cases requires a higher level of proof by clear and convincing evidence that the severity of the discipline was reasonably related to the infraction itself and in line with that usually administered, as well as to the seriousness of the employee's class record. And if you notice that last portion there is, is, is from the just cause provisions in the JCAM. So in the instant case, I am not convinced that the grievance actions as well as the actions of management following the incident could be found to rise to the level of removal. While trust or the lack thereof is a key factor in maintaining the employment relationship, the national parties did not see fit to list the loss of trust between a supervisor and employee as a reason for foregoing progression and discipline. Although it remains a key factor in deciding discipline, the act, incident, or behavior the employee displayed must be the first deciding factor. In this case, the grievant is not only accused, but acknowledges that she drove a postal vehicle while her license was suspended and also presented a false document to her supervisor, claiming that it was her own. While egregious, it was not representative of her employment with the Postal Service. While management claims Ms. Johnson is a short-term employee of the service, the fact of the matter is that she served for six years in her position, albeit first four as a city carrier assistant. And remember right there where I was talking about making sure you get those CCA years on the uh, seniority date. See, this arbitrator definitely took that time into consideration and said that six years, uh, six years was enough to matter here. Um, nonetheless, she performed the same duties as in her current position as a regular ledger carrier, and apparently without receiving any discipline. This demonstrates that she does not have a history of deceit or a pattern of driving under suspension. And she goes on, page 15. Now, let's read a little section here. While six years is not the longest term employee, it is sufficient to build a bank of goodwill. When the employee has not engaged in behavior where it was necessary to issue discipline. The evidence of record here did not provide any prior discipline for Ms. Johnson. Also distinguishable from the cited cases is the fact that the grievant here, after her initial actions to mislead management, did come forward to provide the truth regarding the false license presented. Unlike arbitrator Meischlechter, the second, I probably mispronounced that. In, this, in his case, I am satisfied that the grievant is aware that any future actions of this sort would result in severe disciplinary action and should be a huge deterrent to the grievant being untrustworthy in the future. And so, um, you know, basically arbitrator Nixon, those, you know, her honesty after the fact, um, being apologetic, but the bank of goodwill really mattered here. And it only took six years for this employee to be enough for this arbitrator. Because um, in the award, it says the grievance is sustained. The notice of removal issued to the grievance on May 18, 2018 shall be rescinded and expunged from all records 
and replaced with a 30-day suspension without pay. The grievant error will be immediately returned to work and made whole with the exception of the 30-day non-paid suspension for all lost wages and benefits as though she were not the subject of disciplinary action. And I believe at the time of this award, she was probably off the clock for a good five to six months. So then you take away 30 days from that. Um, so she was even made whole for part of the time she was off. Um, so that's how powerful and important it really is to have that seniority date on there. It can really help make the difference in the case. Um, so then we move on here to number five, which is the grievance employee identification number. And that's really important in the grievance process because a lot of times, you know, it helps us get people paid correctly. Um, some, I actually had a case one time where I had two people with the same name, just different middle names, but that wasn't clear in the file, but we were able to differentiate the employee identification number to, to figure out um, there's two different uh, people with the same name. Um, <clears throat> uh, number eight, the branch number. I think that's self-explanatory. You just got to put your branch number in there. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped number six there. Number six is uh, you, you just want to put the district installation work and zip code there um that's important especially for directing where if these cases get appealed to step b and stuff where they go number seven is the finance number uh you'll find that normally in like employee everything reports key indicator reports things like that you have the finance number on there if man and management should just tell you what it is um, and then number eight is the branch number uh, number nine is the nelc grievance number this is you're gonna have to refer to your branch on this every branch does them a little differently um, but they have well, they all have their own system for how grievance numbers should be applied, but you definitely need to fill that out with the local grievance number. Uh, number um, and that's, again, that's the incident date. Uh, it would be like on a disciplinary case would be when the carrier received the discipline, not when the carrier had the investigative interview or, you know, there was an accident on the street, the date of the accident. It's the date they got the discipline. Uh, normally with pay issues, you can kind of go by the date they got the, should have gotten their paycheck. Um, but, um, sometimes it is specific to the specific day, uh, you know, on a 3971 that was denied would be the date the carrier received the denied 3971. So those are just a few examples. Um, number 11 is the date discussed with the supervisor. Um, so that should be within 14 days after the incident date. Uh, if your incident date was 310, it should have been by 324, which is kind of an example I'm using here, but this, this one was actually, uh, just these are hypothetical dates on here. don't really mean anything. Um, or unless you have some type of agreed to extension and writing, that, that better be within 14 days or else we can have problems with timeless issues. Um, number 12A is a companion MSPB appeal. This is usually something that would apply to veterans, qualifying veterans, uh, in disciplinary like suspensions and removals. Um, if they could, they could appeal through the MSPB board, um, they kind of, at a certain point, they do have to make a decision through what one way or the other, but it gives them two ways to combat uh, discipline. And I actually had a case recently at my office where there was kind of a, you know, a question on when he actually received the notice of removal. Um, and, it, you know, the time of this issue could have been a, a problem there. And so I did tell him, make sure you, you go through MSPB appeal and the MSPB board actually resolved the case. Um, so it, it, it escaped us from having to really fight through the grievance process of this being a timely grievance or not. Um, his management was calling it untimely, at least at the informal A level. So, um, and probably would have carried it throughout. Um, so 12B, EEO appeal. Again, if they have an EEO appeal for the same issue, you check yes. If not, you check no. Um, 13A, the supervisors. 
our name and initials, that should be filled out by the supervisor. That's the only part that should be filled out by the supervisor is the name, initials, and the telephone number. And then 13B, that's where the steward fills out their information, name, initials, and phone number. Um, and that's how you complete the 8190 for the informal A section. Uh, if you do not resolve the grievance, I always suggest attaching a statement about you know what happened, your contentions, those kind of things. For your, you know, especially what happened during the informal A meeting for the formal A representative. Uh, talk with your branch about their appeal procedures for how they appeal things to formal A. All branches do this a little differently. Um, but then you notice right underneath the steward and supervisor's printing name that says formal step A parties. That should be for the formal A parties. The only time the informal A's can, can really put anything in there is if they resolve the case at informal A, can write the issue statement and or remedy. Um, but you need a remedy for sure down at 19A. Um, but otherwise, this is for the formal A parties. I'm not going to spend too much time on this with the formal A parties and most formal A representatives. I know pretty much right C attached on a lot of this stuff and a lot of it will be attached to contentions and stuff. You may see the issue statement handwritten here. Are typed in and same with the remedy if they resolve it at formal A, um, but definitely the contentions, supporting documents and everything, there's going to be check marks and just use the right C attached. Uh, but number 20 down there at the bottom does say the disposition resolved, withdrawn, not resolved. You do want to make sure the proper one's checked, um, especially when you appeal from formal A, you know, not resolved should be appealed with step B. Uh, if you resolve it, then just check resolved. And a lot of times, even for a remedy, I'll, I'll write C attached in there, and I have my remedies typed on a separate piece of paper with signatures on that separate sheet. Um, but the bottom also has a section to, for the USPS and NALC representatives to sign, date, and put their phone number. So that all needs to be filled out by the formal aid parties. Um, and then with that now, I'm going to really spend some time on the what my primary topic for the day was, and this is about light duty um, and grieving light duty and some of the rules that apply to light duty in the JCAM. Um, and I just want to start off by saying there's a difference between light duty and limited duty. Light duty is for an injury or illness that occurs outside of the job or was not caused by the job. Uh, a limited duty situation is an illness or injury that is caused due to your work as a letter carrier. And there are a little bit different obligations when it comes to the two. I'm not going to go into the limited duty right now. That could be an episode or two or three of its own. Um, just that it, it's treated differently. That's, that's all you need to know for now, because I'm going to spend time on light duty, which means you need to go to Article 13 of the National Agreement of JCAM. And there will be, be a little, uh, quite a bit of reading here off the bat to start with this. Um, but there's a lot of contract language here that matters, so it's important to do. Uh, the other thing I just want to mention real quick is Article 13 does not apply to CCAs. It's not part of the uh, Appendix B for CCAs. So just keep that in mind when you have a light-duty situation involving a CCA. Um, so start here on page 13.1 of the JCAM. It says, the provisions of Article 13 govern voluntary requests for light duty by work by employees who are temporarily or permanently incapable of performing their normal duties as a result of illness or injury. The term light duty should not be confused with the term limited duty. The term limited duty is not used in the national agreement. Rather, the term limited duty was established by a CFR, which you know starts going into all the, the different regulations pertaining to FECA and limited duty. Um, 
So then when I go down here to 13.1.B, it says the U.S. Postal Service and the Union recognize their responsibilities to aid and assist deserving full-time, regular, or part-time flexible employees who through illness or injury are unable to perform their regularly assigned duties, agree to the following provisions and conditions for reassignment to a temporary or permanent light duty or other assignments. It will be the responsibility of each installation head to implement the provisions of the agreement within the installation after local negotiations. So right there, it makes it clear it only, it only applies to full-time regular or part-time flexible employees. Um, and it does talk about temporary or permanent light duty assignments. We're only gonna talk about temporary because I really have no experience with uh, permanent light duty assignments. I've never actually run across that scenario, so I don't feel comfortable um, trying to talk too much about that. Um, but on the next page in 13.2 of the JCAM, we go into Article 13.2.A, an employee's request for reassignment, and then this is for a temporary reassignment. Any full-time, regular, or part-time flexible employee recuperating from a serious illness or injury and temporarily unable to perform the assigned duties may voluntarily submit a written request to the installation head for temporary assignment to a light duty or other assignment. The request shall be supported by a medical statement from a licensed physician or, written, or by a written statement from a licensed chiropractor stating when possible the anticipated duration of the convalescence period. Such employee agrees to submit to further examination by a physician designated by the installation head if that official so requests. And then below that language, the, the, the JCAM here does a little bit of an explanation and bullet points that are pretty useful here. Um, the following requirements apply to an employee seeking temporary reassignment to light duty work. Number one, any full-time or part-time flexible employee may request temporary light duty regardless of length of service. So you could be a brand new employee and this would apply to you if you were hired in as a PTF. So, um, you know, newly turned over regular, it applies. The request must be submitted in writing. That's key. You've got to have a written request. A verbal request does not count. Um, the request must be supported by a medical statement from a licensed physician or a written statement from a licensed chiropractor. So, um, you know, the nurse, the head nurse, or, you know, we see a lot of that nurse practitioners uh, and sometimes on medical documents, that's not going to be sufficient here. It has to be a licensed physician or a chiropractor. Uh, the employee bears any cost connected with the statement required under the section. So, yeah, the costs fall on you to get the medical and everything for your light duty request. The employee must agree to submit it to a further examination by a physician designated by an installation head if requested. The Postal Service will be responsible for any cost when it requires a second medical examination. I, I've personally never had a situation where they've actually done this because they generally don't want to pay for it. Um, there, I'm sure there's probably people out there have experienced that I just haven't, where they've, they've actually asked for their own uh, physician to, to review it. Uh, the employee may specifically seek light duty and may seek other assignment within her medical limitations. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead a few pages here, and we're going to talk about 13.2c. And 13.2c kind of talks about the installation head's uh, obligations here when they've had a light duty request submitted. So the installation head shall show the greatest consideration for full-time, regular, or part-time flexible employees requiring light duty or other assignments giving each request careful attention and reassign such employees to the extent possible in the employee's office. When a request is refused, the installation head shall notify the concerned employee in writing, stating the reasons for the inability to reassign the employee. 
So, you know, right there, you see some obligations there where it talks about greatest consideration, giving each request careful attention. Um, and then if it's refused, they have to give them an explanation in writing and it has to have a reason or reasons for the inability to reassign the employee. Those are key things if we have, when we have to file, if a grievance has to be filed, those, those, those things I highlighted there. Um, section three talks about local impl implementation and a lot of local agreements have language about light duty in them. Uh, and we will briefly touch on one of those here today too, uh, a little later on. So 13.3a, this is again on page 13.4 of the JCAM. Through local negotiations, each office will establish the assignments that are to be considered light duty within each craft represented in the office. These negotiations should explore ways and means to make adjustments in normal assignments to convert them to light duty assignments without seriously affecting the production of the assignment. B, light duty assignments may be established from part-time hours to consist of eight hours or less in a service day and 40 hours or less in a service week. The establishment of such assignment does not guarantee any hours to part-time flexible employees. Um, so that basically says, you know, the, a PTF, they may have some light duty work for them, but it's not guaranteed on a day-by-day -day basis is what it's talking about in case they have, they probably could sometimes maybe have regulars that might need the work uh, would be one, one good reason why it wouldn't be guaranteed for the PTF. Um, C, number of light duty assignments, the number of assignments within each craft that may be reserved for temporary or permanent light duty assignments consistent with good business practices shall be determined by past experience as the number of reassignments that can be expected during each year and the method used in reserving these assignments to ensure that no assigned full-time regular employee will be adversely affected will be defined through local negotiations. The light duty employees tour hours, work location and basic work weeks shall be those of the light duty assignment and the needs of the service, whether or not the same as for the employee's previous duty assignment. So that kind of talks about, you know, they can't take away work from full-time employees to accommodate a light duty assignment. But notice it doesn't say anything about PTFs or CCAs. Looks like can take away their work. It also talks about how their schedule, the tour hours may possibly be changed based on the need of the assignment. Um, so that's, that's a possibility the hours of your assignment could be changed. Um, so then we're on 13, so on page, now we're on page 13-5 of JCAM, 13.4a, talks about general policy procedures. And again, it says, every effort shall be made to reassign the concerned employee within the employee's present craft or occupational group. Even if such assignment reduces the number of hours of work for the supplemental workforce, after all efforts are exhausted in this area, consideration will be given to reassignment to another craft or occupational group within the same installation. So that's really strong language there. When it says every effort shall be made to reassign, that means they pretty much have to bend over backwards to try to find work in that person's present craft. Uh, obviously, in line with the other provisions, can't take away from another regular, but it does talk about the supplemental workforce's hours may be reduced in order to do this. Uh, that would, again, fall on PTFs, CCAs, you know, and uh, other, other non-full-time employees. Um, 13.4b. The, re the full-time regular or part-time flexible employee must be able to meet the qualifications of the position to which the employee is reassigned on a permanent basis. On a temporary reassignment, qualifications can be modified, provided excessive hours are not used in the operation. And so it talks about is on a temporary light duty, you might be able to modify things on your route for you to help you out, you know, 
if you know we have a restriction we can only carry 10 pounds they could maybe have our packages that are over 10 pounds delivered by an overtime carrier cca ptf things like that um the key is excessive hours are not used so you know maybe um you might not be allowed to case in all your dps if it's showing it's taking you too long to do so you know that might be something i, I that's something you get in a fight over that's really uh some language that could definitely um cause um you know a grievance to be sent up um over what that really means um then we go on to 13.4c the reassignment of a full-time regular part-time flexible employee to a temporary permanent light duty or other assignment shall not be made to the detriment of any full-time regular on a scheduled assignment or give a reassigned part-time flexible preference over other part-time flexible employees uh, so i was just saying the ptf i mean besides the language of regulatory kind of it's it gets definitely hammered here several times that they can't be affected but the ptf on light duty doesn't get preference over another ptf that's what also is saying there um 13.4 d the reassignment of a full-time regular or part-time flexible employee under the provisions of this article to an agreed upon light duty temporary or permanent or other assignment within the office such as the type of assignment area of assignment hours duty hours of duty etc will be the decision of the installation head who will be guided by the examining physician's report employees ability to reach the place of employment and ability to perform the duties involved so now it talks about that the installation head here must look at that examining physician's report and use that as the basis for the light duty assignment um so if they're offering something that's clearly outside of what that um, physician's report is that would be grievable because then they're, they're clearly trying to make an assignment that the carrier can't do and they're, they're not allowed to do that an additional full-time regular position can uh, i'm sorry 134 e an additional full-time regular position can be authorized within the craft or occupational group to which the employee is being reassigned if the additional position can be established out of the part-time hours being used in that operation without increasing the overall hour usage if this cannot be accomplished then consideration will be given to reassignment on to an existing vacancy so they're saying you can create kind of a full-time light duty assignment as long as it's being done out of the pool of part-time employees hours uh, but it also says can it doesn't require it um so you know that that language definitely creates a gray area on whether they, they need to do that or not um but i'm going to think if most of the time that carrier is getting their hours without them creating that assignment you're probably gonna have a hard time grieving this and forcing them to create a full-time position that would be my guess but i, I never actually have grieved that um 13.4.f the installation head shall review each light duty assignment at least once each year or at any time the installation head has reason to believe the incumbent is able to perform satisfactory and other than the light duty assignment the employee occupies this review is to determine the need for continuation of the employee in the light duty assignment such employee may be requested to submit a medical review by a physician designated by the installation head if the installation head believes such an examination to be necessary so the answer you know we do see a lot of questions about you know medical and what you have to do whether it's light duty sick leave but in this particular case for light duty it does say that they're supposed to review the assignment once a year um and if he has reason to believe you can perform the duties of the assignment you know that so they basically need to make sure they're reviewing what's going on once at least once a year is what it's saying 
Uh, an employee may be requested to submit medical review by a physician designated by the installation head. However, if he does that, he or she does that, they have to pay for that. Um, so just keep that in mind. Um, page 13-7 of the JCAM, and we're, 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 getting, we're getting there with the uh, Article 13 stuff. We're almost done reading that. A 13.4H says when a full-time regular employee in a temporary light duty assignment is declared recovered on medical review, the employee shall be returned to the employee's former duty assignment if it has not been discontinued. If such former regular assignment has been discontinued, the employee becomes an unassigned full-time regular employee. So that basically says once they're recovered from light duty, if they had a, like a route, they go back to the route. Um, if, not, if for some reason the route's gone, then I guess they would become an unassigned regular, or if they were an unassigned regular, they just go back to being an unassigned regular. Um, and then 13.4K on the same page here, says when a part-time flexible on temporary light duty is declared recovered, the employee's detail, the light duty shall be terminated. Basically, they don't have an assignment, so they just, it's terminated, and now they just go back to doing whatever they were doing before, or, you know, signed as needed, if they're not bids, things like that. Um, so I'm going to take a look. This is uh, out of an LMOU. Um, I just pulled the item 17 here. And then this is where it talks about the identification of assignments that are to be considered light duty within each craft presented in that office. So this is something you really, uh, most offices you should be looking at this when you have a light duty case, item 17 specifically. There's a couple of items that usually refer to item 17. And this, you know, they're all different, but they'll have things set aside for, for light duty carriers in here. Usually there's a list, um, like this, this particular one says light duty assignments may include, but are not limited to assisting routes by setting up mail, relabeling carrier cases, rewriting carrier route books, coverage of suitable collection routes, labeling inside of apartment boxes, any other assignment or task which is available and within the employee's physical limitations. Okay. A lot, sometimes they'll identify a specific number of light duties, sometimes they don't. Um, but <clears throat> that's where you're going to find that language is in item 17 in your LMOU. Um, then I got a few um, documents I'm going to refer to that involve light duty and things we, we talk about in here that management says that are usually have been addressed long, long ago and they're generally inaccurate. Um, so this is M-01170. Um, and this was signed by um, Vice President Lawrence Hutchinson's of the National Association of Letter Carriers and uh, um, someone in labor. Uh, this is all the way back in 93. Recently, you met with Stanton in this pre-arbitration discussion of the above-reference case. Uh, the issue involves revisions to the ELM Section 355, which address light-duty assignments. During our discussion, we mutually agreed the ELM Section 355.1 will be revised by adding a new section, which will read as follows. It says, the light-duty provisions of the various collective bargaining agreements between the U.S. Postal Service and the Postal Unions require that installation heads show the greatest consideration for full-time, regular, or part-time flexible employees requiring light duty or other assignments, giving each request careful attention, and reassign such employees to the extent possible in the employee's office. So if you notice, this, this matched pretty much word for word the language in the JCAM. This is kind of where it derived from. Um, so then we got a couple other ones here. Um, this is M-01360, and a lot of times you see uh, management will try to require carriers to request light duty when they can't work overtime, or say they can't bid an assignment when they can't work overtime, and this this memo addresses this, and this was um, signed by Vincent Sombrato. So, 
says, after reviewing this matter, we mutually agree that no national interpretive issue is fairly presented in this case with the following understanding from the Snow Award. Uh, so arbitrator Snow uh, must have um, enforced this. An inability to work overtime does not necessarily prohibit an employee from performing his or her normal assignment. Accordingly, such an individual working with such a restriction is not necessarily on light duty. Employees restricted from working overtime may bid on and receive assignments for which they can perform a regular eight-hour assignment. Accordingly, then they just remanded back to what was the old step three. This is uh, from 1998, by the way. So uh, this is one of, the, one of the myths that's out there is, you know, management says you can't bid on an assignment, you can't do overtime. Yes, you can. Uh, you're, and, you're, and it even says in here you're not necessarily – if such an individual working such a restriction is not necessarily on my duty. And then one more here, and this is where we, we management will have blanket policies about um, how often you have to turn in medical uh, documentation, um, especially 30 days is one of the more common ones. And this one specifically addresses that. This was signed by President Young in 2001. And this is M-01437. It's also a national pre-arb. And uh, it says the issue in this grievance is whether a local blanket policy requiring an update of medical information every 30 days to continue in a light duty assignment is a violation of Article 13 of the National Agreement. After reviewing this matter, we mutually agree that while no national interpretive issue is fairly presented in this case, the issue is resolved as follows. Parties agree that the local practice of requiring an automatic update of medical information every 30 days is contrary to the intent of Article 13 and therefore will be discontinued. Consistent with the provisions of Article 13.4F of the National Agreement, an installation head may request an employee on light duty to submit to a medical review at any time. The installation head shall review each light duty reassignment at least once each year or at any time the installation head has reason to believe that the incumbent is, a, is able to perform satisfactory in other than the light duty assignment the employee occupies. This review is to determine the need for the continuation of the light duty assignment. Such an employee may be requested to submit medical review by a physician designated by the installation head if the installation head believes it to be necessary. So, so like right there at the beginning, though, it says the party, you know, 30 days is contrary to the intent. So if you have some, some, some um, manager requiring that, grieving and use that memo. And actually, we'll be talking about, so I got a couple of cases that show how some of these either MOUs or uh, the light duty language that I was reading applies. Uh, the first one is a step B decision out of, uh, this was out of the office uh, I'm the formerly representative, formerly representative for. Uh, this was decided back in uh, March, of, March of 2021. And I'm just going to read uh, some portions of this and kind of just give some highlights of it because as I uh, the case. But so did the employer violate Article 13 of the National Agreement when they withdrew the grievance, previously approved light duty work, and removed the grievance from the schedule between December 4th of 2020 through December 17th of 2020? And if so, what is the appropriate remedy? So in the explanation section, it says the grievance was a full-time regular carrier. Uh, he, he had been on light duty as prescribed by a medical condition dated from October 7th of 2020 through November 4th of 2020 which restricted him to working four hours each day, as well as other restrictions. The union contends the grievance was assigned to the light duty consisting of approximately four hours a day for each day worked prior to 12-3-2020. On 12-3-20, the grievance 
protested that delivering red plum mailers would be outside his existing medical restrictions, and I remember the case they were. The grievant was given a written notice from the supervisor asserting that the grievant was being removed from the schedule until he provided new medical documentation and a decision was rendered. The supervisor gave him a locally developed form requesting light duty, and the grievant worked 5.47 hours on that day. So he said he needed, a, you know, they're telling him he needed immediate medical and they're going to take him off the clock, but they let him finish working that day. They've already undermined their own position with that. Um, they said the grievant provided him with documentation dated 12 9 20, saying he can return to work with the identical restrictions of those on the on November 4th 20 document. Management contends they instructed the grievant to return to work on the 17th and that the week it took to consider the new restrictions was reasonable. The grievant returned to work on Monday 12 21 and resumed working approximately four hours a day. So we, you know, this was grieved because we're saying they violated Article 13. And they withdrew his light duty request. Um, and the DRT referenced M-01437, which talked about the blanket policy on 30 days to um, bring in medical because the postmaster, as you'll see, the installation head um, in her contentions wrote that she's that um, it said Ms. Sanders. Uh, who's the formerly representative requested updated medical from the grievance because the receipt of the last one was past 30 days. Updated medical is warranted every 30 days. So she actually made a contention that is required to bring in medical every 30 days. And I remember arguing with her that that's not required, showed her the memo, and maybe still had to send up the DRT as well. Um, so the DRT decided, they said the DRT has resolved this grievance. Management violated Article 13.2 of the National Agreement by removing the grievance from the light duty between December 4th of 2020 through December 17th of 2020. The future management shall comply with Article 13.2 of the National Agreement. The agreement shall be made whole for four hours of work on each of his regular scheduled days from 12-4 through 12-17 of 2020. And the management step B representative process payroll adjustments. So as you see, we were successful in grieving that because management tried utilizing a blanket 30-day medical policy um, also, I think letting him finish the work that day was, was another argument I made uh, without going back to the file. But um, so that just shows how that some of that applies. Um, then I also have an arbitration award. I was the arbitration advocate for this case. Um, and the C number is C-35624. This was in front of arbitrator John Obi. Um, and what this was is this this carrier I'll uh, go into a little bit of background here. Actually, I read some of it, so I'll, maybe I'll just do that. But um, she had um, she had a medical condition that required her to request light duty, and she had some restrictions. Uh, basically, management initially went with it, and then they withdrew, uh, then asked for an updated medical, which she supplied, and then they tried denying the request at that point. Um, but we'll, we'll read how some of what arbitrator Obi goes into. I think this is a really good award. Uh, for these kind of cases. Um, so a little bit of the background and, and statement of facts here. It says on, on July 16th, the grievance made her initial light duty request on a USPS form. The form was completed by her doctor and outlined certain restrictions that the grievance had for the performance of her job, including but not limited to restrictions related to lifting, walking, standing, etc. The doctor indicated that she could perform these functions with breaks. On July 26th, the Postal Service nurse acknowledged receipt of the light duty request and sent an email to the postmaster outlining the grievance restrictions and set forth on the request and advised him to let the grievance know if he could accommodate her and provide an approval or denial letter. 
Um, August 16th through the 20th, although there was no approval or denial letter in the, in the record, the postmaster allowed the grievance to work on those dates. Then on August 20th, according to management's contentions and the testimony of the postmaster at hearing, the Postal Service became aware the grievance was having other employees deliver her parcels. And because of that, and because the postmaster believed that the need for breaks as set forth on the light duty request was vague, he required the grievance update her request for light duty. So now August 27th, the grievance doctor completed a light duty request form. Uh, on the form, the doctor identified that the grievance could perform an eight hour work period, but would need breaks between 15 to 30 minutes, four times a day. The doctor indicated that the grievance suffered from an autoimmune, a form of arthritis, and wrote, please allow for these light duty accommodations so that they may continue to work. Um, the, the second request for light duty was faxed on August 31st and received by the Postal Service. The grievance reported to work on September 1st and 2nd and worked eight hour shifts. Then on September 7th, the grievance reported to work and began her shift at 8 a.m. Uh, according to the postmaster's testimony, that's when he returned from vacation. I'm going to summarize here because I'm not going to read it all, but he came back from vacation, uh, reviewed the reviewed it, sent it to the nurse uh, early in that morning, and landed up denying her light duty request. But the supervisor actually did the written disapproval of light duty. Um, so then I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to um, arbitrator Obi's analysis and conclusion, which starts on page six. Um, and there's quite a bit of this highlight, but I think there's a lot of really good language in here. So it's, it's worth going through. Uh, it says, as this case involves a matter of contract interpretation, the Postal Service asserts the burden is on the union to prove a violation of Article 13 and the LMOU. In his post-hearing brief on page two, the Postal Service asserts that it did not violate Article 13 or the LMOU by not providing a light duty assignment to the grievance, and the union failed to prove that the service did not make a bona fide effort to provide the grievance work within her restrictions. There is a conflict among the arbitrable authority as cited by the Postal Service and the union as to the exact nature of the burden of proof that is required in a case where an employee has made a request for light duty and what the service's obligations are under Article 13 of the LMOU. The union cites the arbitration award of Arbitrator Lawrence Roberts, in which he sets forth the following relative burdens of proof in light duty case as follows. And this Roberts case is another one that you should really look at uh, when you have a light duty case. It's a really good award. Um, it says initially the, the union's contractual mandate is simple, only requiring a written light duty request from the grievant along with supporting medical documentation in support of the request. In this case, that particular portion of the requirement was met. Hence, the burden shifted to the agency to show that the request was made by the grievance was given the consideration and attention called for by the agreement. Um, and this touches on a concept I think Corey's probably gone over some episodes, but the shifting burden. Uh, so this arbitrator said the burden kind of shifted the management after the employee just gave the a light duty, a written light duty request with supporting medical to show that they gave it greatest consideration and careful attention. Um, that's key here. But it's, um, on the next page, so the burden is on management show it met its obligations under the JQ. The Postal Service, on the other hand, relying on the arbitration award of arbitrator Donald Barrett, asserts the burden of proof in a light duty request remains at all times with the union. And in fact, there is no such shifting burden. And that's key to remember. So when you are doing a light duty case, don't just rely on the burden shift in the management. You don't always, it doesn't always happen with arbitrators or even maybe, I don't know, every step B team would 
would review such a case either. Always try to cite work available within the grievance restrictions, especially with a statement from the grievant, you know, the local steward, different things that they could point out to, you know, the LMOU has, you know, light duty set aside for, for these kind of cases, because sometimes we have, it, the burden is on us to identify what was available, what wasn't offered. Um, and so he talks about that here. The union maintains that they have demonstrated a prima facie case with the burden shifting to management to prove they did not violate the agreement. I must respectfully disagree. There is no contractual arbitrable support for such a position, and I find the burden to prove a violation does properly remain with the only party, in this case, that is the union. So as you see, those two arbitrators have very different positions on the, whether the burden shifts or not. Um, thus, to begin the analysis in this case, we must determine what the relative burdens of the parties are in the context of this case to see whether there, in fact, was a violation of the CBA and the LMOU. Following the logic of arbitrator Roberts, the union clearly met its burden of presenting a prima facie case when it provided the Postal Service with its light duty request dated August 27th of 2021. The question becomes whether the burden then shifted to the Postal Service to establish by demonstrative evidence that it gave the greatest consideration of the grievance light duty request, giving careful attention to that request as required by Article 13 or cooperatively employing every effort to employ letter carriers for the purpose of light duty assignments as required by Article 10 of the LMOU. Arbitrator Roberts asserts that there is such a shifting burden, such a burden shifting to the Postal Service imposing an obligation for the Postal Service to demonstrate compliance with the CBA and the LMOU, while arbitrator Barrett would assert there is no such burden shift and the burden remains at all times with the union. While the arguments may be semantic in nature, they are important, but in the context, this arbitrator finds that arbitrator Roberts' position is the correct one based upon the language of the CBA and the LMOU and based upon logic. There's a really strong language there. He said that's the only logical conclusion one can come up with is that the burden shifts. Uh, that's really good language. Um, Article 13 in the LMOU creates certain duties on the part of the Postal Service when an employee makes a light duty request. The service is the only party that can demonstrate empirically what steps it took to comply with those duties. Only a postmaster or other delegated authority can offer demonstrative evidence or testimony to show exactly what the service did to accommodate the light duty request. Such proofs are not within the keen of the union. As the service knew what it did, or more correctly, correct, I'm sorry, more correctly, did not do in the present context to show compliance with Article 13 in the LMOU. Thus, reason demands that there must be a shift in the burden of proof to the Postal Service to demonstrate that it had fulfilled its contractual obligations once an employee, such as the grievant, had submitted a light duty request along with medical documentation in support of such a request. The question then becomes, did the Postal Service in the present case offer any evidence that complied with Article 13 in the LMOU? The answer is no. So right there, the arbitrator told you what, who won this case, right there. Arbitrator Roberts again provides persuasive guidance in reaching the conclusion that the Postal Service failed to comply with Articles 13 in the LMOU. In Arbitrator Roberts' case, the grievance has supplied a written request to the service via fax, and the very next day the request was denied. Arbitrator Roberts asserted that Article 13 imposes affirmative compliance obligations, and that it was clear such obligations could not properly be complied with one day's time from the time of the initiation of its request denied, to, to its denial. And he wrote the following, management's decision maker in the process failed in providing greatest consideration or careful attention in that general process described by the negotiators. Given that short time span, it was rather obvious the officer in charge invoked very little time 
given the general thought process directed by the party's agreement. Um, notice this careful consideration great and our careful attention and grace consideration in every effort. Those those things are really quoted quite a bit in this award, and it comes directly out of the J camp, so and the contract. Just just keep that in mind too. Based upon the time sequence in the present case, the facts are even more telling that the postmaster did not give the greatest consideration or exercise every effort to find light duty work for the grievant, as he saw the request for the first time after 8 a.m. on September 7th and denied the request and, and denied the request after consulting with the nurse. Within less than an hour, as the grievant clocked out at 8:50 a.m. on the same day, such action cannot in any way be construed as being in compliance with the requirements of Article 13 of the MOU. A little further in the award, he states, there is no evidence produced by the service that the postmaster gave any consideration to the grievance request, let alone careful consideration to that request. Even in his written statement that the postmaster provided as part of the record in this case, there is evidence that he only gave a cursory review of the grievance request as he acknowledged in that statement. Little can be gleaned from the disapproval itself, which was issued by the grievance supervisor, not the postmaster. And reads as follows. Due to the to restriction you have at this time, we cannot accommodate your current restriction. As the union persuasively argues, there is nothing in this denial letter that sets forth with any specificity why the Postal Service cannot accommodate the grievance restrictions. A little further down, it says the union laid out in its contentions the following work the grievance could perform within her restrictions. And the formal aid representative for the case did a really, really nice job. The grievance is capable of answering phones for filing paperwork, 3996s, 1571s, inspecting route books for errors, and other miscellaneous work that could be performed. None of this was considered. UBBM also needs to be processed due to the lack of clerks in Lyle or other clerk work that CCAs are currently performing. And, and then further down, as the union persistently notes, this record is bereft of any evidence that the service carefully considered any of these other options for keeping this 22-year employee gainfully employed. Uh, and, and I just want to know, I think three or four times arbitrary notes are 22 years, by the way. Well, again, going back to the seniority point made in my first earlier in the episode, those that matters to arbitrators a lot. Um, there is also evidence on this record that the postmaster failed to consider that the grievance could in fact perform her job as a letter carrier with the description set forth in the August 27th light duty request. After faxing the light duty request form to the Postal Service, the grievance reported for work on September 1st and September 2nd again and worked eight-hour shifts. Uh, and that was really damning evidence, I think, for, against management in this case. This carrier worked two full eight-hour days after that, and they're trying to say she could not work. They could not honor her light duty assignment. This absurd. Um, further down, the postmaster did not give the grievance an opportunity to explain her situation, let alone give her the opportunity to offer to take breaks off the clock if need be, as the union suggested as an alternative to breaks provided under the contract. Um, then further down, it talks about, you know, the grievance had to take a lot of time off, you know, management was making that a position. And it says the Postal Service's obligation and that of the Postmaster was to give careful consideration and exercise every effort to find light duty work for this 22-year employee who, through no fault of her own, suffers from a severe debilitating condition. The Postal Service and the Postmaster did not give such careful consideration, nor did they employ every effort to find light duty work for the grievance. And the grievance is sustained, leaving the only question of remedy for the violation. So... As a result, he issued a cease and desist order that the grievance be immediately returned to work and provided appropriate work within her medical restrictions. 
and be offered reasonable accommodations to be able to work within said restrictions. The agreement is to be made whole for all lost wages, all annual leave and sick time that she lost and would have accumulated before the violation of the contract, reimbursement for any medical expenses that she may have been forced to occur as a result of being placed on off-duty status and to be otherwise made whole for any losses she may have incurred. So this is a really great award. Um, you know, uh, this is really right or wrong here. There was absolutely no reason they should have denied her right duty. You know, after this, she returned to work. She's, she's worked every, you know, like on normal schedule ever since. This really, uh, her restrictions weren't that serious that this should have even gotten to this point. And, uh, you know, the Postal Service probably obviously should have settled this case uh, with me before going to hearing, but they chose not to. Um, and then speaking of the arbitrator Roberts, I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit out of that award. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to go too deep into that one, but there's a couple of things I highlighted. I think are pretty good language out of it. Um, this one's C-28478. Uh, again, arbitrator Roberts. Um, this looks like it's out of Florida, Naples, Florida. And on page seven of the award, it says specific language directs installation heads shall show the greatest consideration for full-time regular employees requiring light duty or other assignments, given each request careful attention and reassign such employee to extend possible employee's office. He, he opines further, while that language is broad, the employer is still directed to provide each bargaining unit employee who properly submits a request greatest consideration and careful attention. Again, those are broad terms. Specifically, this type of case, broad terms, albeit a reference point, suggests that the burden of proof on the union may rise in active, while the defense of the employer is lessened by a similar scale, since the language is broad in scope. Greatest consideration, careful attention, and require more specifics from the union in order to become enforceable. This specific requirement set forth by negotiators leaves room for interpretation based on the facts of each unique case. Yet those terms suggest the intent of the negotiators was, at the very least, to require the employer to make some sort of effort to locate light duty work for any bargaining unit employee making a formal request. And that request was properly made by the agreement in this case. Since the negotiators were not specific and carefully outlining their intent, the facts of each case must be compared to the available language. But he's already, you know, what he, what he talks about a while, he talks about, you know, kind of raising the burden on the union, but, you know, an active. But then he goes back and says, well, you know, there's got to be some obligation on management to show that they, um, you know, um, tried to locate light duty work for our unit employee. And I think that's key uh, language there is that management in this case made no effort, none, to show that they tried to, to the, the case I, I just did out of Lyle. No work, none. So um, with that, uh, I'm closing out uh, for the day here. Um, just again, uh, anyone you know wants to reach out, they have their own case about light duty and they need some assistance. You know, feel free to reach out to Corey or uh, any of those associated with the podcast. He has my contact information. I'd be more than happy to assist. Uh, and with that, Corey, I, I'll turn it back over to you, sir. All right, John. I appreciate you, my brother. Uh, we're gonna get this one right, man. I promise you that. So. <laughs> Thank you again. Now that's three hours that John's been on here with y'all and uh, I can't thank him enough. The guy is extremely intelligent, extremely bright as far as the contract is concerned. So I really do appreciate him. And so next week we're going to pick it up again. I know it's Easter Sunday, but I'll do one at the end of the day 
on Sunday. Got a lot of stuff to cover and, and go over and um, a lot of stuff. So we'll do another Salted Peanuts edition next week, okay? Again, thank you to John. I appreciate that guy. Extremely bright, extremely intelligent. I, I just can't thank him enough. That's that's three hours of my man's time now. <laughs> he has spent trying to do this same episode. So uh, I'll see y'all next week. Y'all have a fantastic rest of the week. And uh, we'll pick it up next Sunday. All right.